Well, good morning. Uh, it is just an honor to be able to worship alongside of you. I love our church family, and I love just being able to gather together every week. This is not something that we have to do. It's something we get to do, to magnify the name of the Lord together, to recenter our hearts and our lives on things that are eternal and that matter. And so it's just uh, such a privilege that we get to do this. I get to be with you this morning. If, if you have a Bible uh, with you, and I ask you to turn to Acts chapter 8. Uh, we're continuing on in this, this series in the book of Acts as we're going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, uh, exploring what does it mean for us to be the church unleashed with the gospel, looking at the early church that was unleashed with the gospel. And our prayer is that the things that were true there, happening in and among and through them, would become true in us. We're going to look at how the gospel goes out this morning uh, in ways that hasn't yet in the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the seat back in front of you. And that'd be a gift we'd love to give you. Uh, we want everyone to have a copy of God's Word together. And as we, before we jump into this text, what we just sang is what I'm praying happens. My, my prayer has been and is that there would be no rival, there would be no equal in our hearts when it comes to the name of Jesus. Ultimately, there is no rival, there is no equal. What we're saying is true. We believe that and we know that. But as humans, we recognize that our hearts waver, chase other things. And so there are rivals. God is not always unequal in our affections. And so my prayer this morning is that would be true. That there would be walls broken down in everyone in this room who call themselves a Jesus follower. And so I just want to pray that over you again uh, as we jump in this word. Would you just pray with me? Father, we need you. We love you. We thank you for the truths that we've already looked at, we've already sung. We ask that you would break down the rivals in our lives this morning. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you bring about conviction and repentance within us. And I pray that would begin with me. I pray that Anyone in this room who doesn't know you as Savior and Lord, that even this morning you would open their eyes to see the beauty of the gospel. We ask that nothing would be known in this room except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this morning we are in Acts chapter 8, and uh, as you're turning there, we're going to put Acts 1-8 up on the screens, uh, because to really understand Acts chapter 8 and the significance of what's going on, we have to begin by looking at Acts 1-8, and this promise that Jesus gives, and this command that Jesus gives, um, so that'll be up on the screen in just a second, and it's, it's a familiar verse for us, and it says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you what Jesus is saying would happen and you will be my witnesses because you are mine I bought you with a price you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth and so this morning what we're looking at in Acts 8 up to this point we've seen the Holy Spirit come we've seen the apostles and the early church numbers have begun to grow and they have been his witnesses in Jerusalem predominantly, and it's begun to spread throughout Judea. And this morning, what happens is it goes to Samaria. 
the gospel breaks through. It comes to a place it has not been, and a place where Jews and Samaritans have always been opposed to one another. The gospel overcomes those barriers. And it's just a beautiful thing that's happening. And we begin to see a glimpse of it going to the ends of the earth by the end of chapter 8. Now, just a couple of things to help set up what we're, what we're going to look at this morning. Um, one is I won't read through the entire passage right now. We'll kind of walk through it together because it is longer. It's 40 verses. Um, and if you've been around church long, uh, you know that trying to tackle 40 verses in 40 minutes is difficult. And when it's me, it's impossible. Okay, so we're just going to get that out of the way now. Four verses in 40 minutes, that's hard. 40 verses, that's impossible. So we're just going to kind of get an overview of it um, and pull out some of the things that are there. And my, my hope for you is that you're in a life group um, and that you'll be in your life group this week and you guys will be able to kind of go into more detail reading through, talking about the things you've learned and seen and heard in this passage this week. That's one of the reasons why our life groups exist. Another thing that's really important about this text and most of the book of Acts is that uh, it's narrative. And so it's telling us what happened. It's, it's historical. Uh, it, it's what actually took place in the church. So some of the New Testament, a lot of it's epistle and it's letter. And so it's the Apostle Paul or Peter, whoever, saying, do these things, pursue these things, believe these things, know these things, flee these things. Abstain from these things. And it's, it's very specific. This is what you're to do. This is what you're not to do. In this passage, it's descriptive. So it's telling us what happened, what occurred. But even within that, we can see things that were happening and true of the early church that should be true of us. And that will be the way, the lens that we look at this passage. So again, Acts 1.8 kind of leads us in. And what we see happening here is the gospel going out through the early church. The gospel moving out. And what we see is that because the church treasured Jesus Christ, the gospel went out through them. And what the tension I want you and I to wrestle with this morning is this. That a lot of times I think as believers, we have really good intentions for who we want to be, how we want to live, how we want to follow God. But good intentions don't mean that we always have right actions. That our intentions, our desires are one thing, but our actions, the way we live, is another. When we look at this passage, we're going to see the desire, the conviction, but we're going to see the action behind it. And so my prayer this morning is, again, that the way we live our lives would reflect the gospel and the Jesus that we adore. Good intentions don't always mean right actions. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, several weeks ago when I was preaching, uh, the next day something happened to me that, that really brought this out to life. Uh, I love getting to preach God's word. I love getting to be a part of our pastoral team here. But I'm just going to be honest with you, preaching wears me out. Uh, like I love doing it. I'm exhausted at the end of the day, just physically, emotionally, mentally. It just it completely zaps me. So Monday mornings are a little rough for me, especially after preaching. You can ask my family, you can pray over them for that. And so several weeks ago, I preached on Sunday, Monday morning got up, and I'm kind of out of it, groggy, need an extra three cups of coffee, whatever that is, to get going. And Katie asked me if I could get the kids breakfast. And so I'm doing that, trying to be a good husband, a good dad, getting them started right for the day. And so for those of you who know Jack, he has some food allergies, so have to be careful with what we make for him. And so I made him some cinnamon toast. Super simple. Gluten-free bread, 
cinnamon, sugar, butter, bang, we're good. That's a dad breakfast right there. Nothing too complicated, we're good. So made him breakfast, and he takes a bite, and guess what he says? I don't like this. I'm sorry you don't like it. Eat it, you know. And so, you know, he starts to do that. And then a couple minutes later, I hear uh, the statement that ruins fathers. You don't make it like mommy makes it. (laughs) Mommy makes it so much better. This tastes weird. This tastes funny. It's like, obey me. Eat your toast. I'm your father. It's good. Eat it. Because I said to, you know. And so we do that. Get everybody else situated. I make myself some. Sit down to eat it. And I put it up to my mouth. And it smells funny. Like, oh no. What have I done? So I'm not going to take a bite of it because it smells weird. I'm going to go see what I did. So I go and look, and what I thought was cinnamon was not cinnamon. Instead, I grabbed the chili powder, (laughs) yes, and poured it all over both pieces of toast, and then forced my son to eat both pieces of toast every last drop. And some of you are shaking your heads. I know, I'm a terrible father, terrible family pastor, felt bad. And Katie's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I, I meant to give him a good breakfast. Um, she's like, did you eat it? It's like, no, I wasn't going to eat it. It's like, and so I asked Jack, why did you not spit it out? He's like, well, you told me to eat it. I was just obeying you. So my intentions were really good. My intentions were good. My actions were not. And I think a lot of times in our Christian life, we have really good intentions, but our actions don't really live out what we've been called to do and to be. And so as we walk through this passage this morning, I want you to wrestle in that. Not do I want to do the right things, not do I want to follow God. Does my life reflect that Jesus is my treasure? Is the gospel going out in my life in such a way that reflects that Jesus is my treasure? Or is that something I just want, but it's not the way I live? So here's the big idea. Where Jesus is treasured, the gospel goes out. Where Jesus is treasured, the gospel goes out. The early church that we're looking at here in Acts 8, Jesus was their treasure. Well, how will you know? Because all through the first seven chapters, we've seen it time and time again. When you are persecuted and you pray for boldness, instead of relief and escape, Jesus is your treasure. When you take your house and your possessions and you sell what you have and give it to people who are in need in the church, Jesus is your treasure, your better possession. When the apostles are beaten because they proclaim the name of Jesus, how do they respond? Joy. They are joyful that they are counted worthy to suffer the name. Jesus is your treasure when you're excited about being beaten. Stephen, he was martyred, he was killed, he was stoned to death. Jesus is your joy when you're willing to lose your life for the sake of the gospel. And because Jesus was their treasure, the gospel went out. And so we're going to walk through this text as much as we can in the time that we have. And we're going to look at some ways the gospel was going out through the early church. And what I want you to do is compare these to your lives and say, is this true of me? Is this true of me? Why is this not true of me if it's not? Am I treasuring something over Jesus Christ? Is my desires not lining up with my actions? So let's begin uh, with the first one in verse 1. First thing you see is this. Where Jesus is treasured, persecution will be present. 
Where Jesus is treasured, persecution will be present. If you're treasuring Christ, there will be persecution. Look at 8 verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. Now we're going to talk a lot about Saul next week when we get to Acts 9. We know he becomes the Apostle Paul. But at the death of Stephen, he was in favor of that unjust death. And now he begins to ravage the church. Let's see how. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Verse 2, devout man buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. When Jesus is treasured, there is persecution against the church. It happens. It always happens. Now, what is persecution? That might be a really good question to ask. Sometimes things go bad in our lives because it's not persecution, but because it's a consequence to sin. If the speed limit is 60 and you're going 120 and getting a wreck, that's not persecution, right? That's, that's not inflicting persecution if the police officer pulls you over. You broke the law. You are suffering the consequence of your action. That's not persecution. There's also a difference between trial and persecutions. Persecutions and trials can come together, but they also can be different. In James 1, 2, it talks about counting all joy when you go through various trials. Walking through sickness or disease or cancer isn't necessarily persecution. That's, that's just walking through a trial, a difficulty, a loss, a pain. Persecution is when you are suffering difficulty or harm because you're making the name of Jesus known. So when we say the gospel, when we hold up the truth of God's word, and we are rejected, or we are demeaned, or we are hurt, or we are afflicted because of our holding on to this word and holding it up and speaking the truth of it, that is persecution. And that is what's happening here in the church. And when we are faithful to talk about Jesus, to hold up the truth of God's word, there will be rejection. Sometimes that's severe, especially in other places in the world. I was in Nigeria last Sunday, and in the classes that we were teaching, there were people, everyone in the class knew people who in the north part of the country, where radical Islam and Boko Haram and all that is present, Christians are being murdered, kidnapped, homes are being burned. It's a reality. You stand for your faith, you will suffer persecution, severe persecution. In the United States, it's not quite that way. But if you stand for Jesus, you will be ridiculed. If you share the gospel with people, you will have people reject you. If you stand for the truth of scripture, people will push against you. And there will be tension. And so for us as the church, one of the questions we need to ask is this, are you facing persecution? Is there a form of persecution happening in your lives? Is it present? If it's not present, why is it not present? Is it present because you're not present because you're faithfully proclaiming the name of Jesus and you're just not getting any pushback? Or is it because you're not proclaiming the name of Jesus? For us as Christians, there always should be some tension. There should be some pushback when we treasure Christ. Jesus himself said it this way, Remember the word I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The, Paul, the Apostle Paul said even more plainly in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Corinthians 1, The cross is folly to those who do not believe. 
Because ultimately, when we share the truth of the gospel with people who do not know Jesus, we are telling them, you are wrong. You are in sin. You're not just a, bad, a good person who does bad things. You are dead in your sin. That's offensive. That's hard. And we can love them, and we should, and we should serve them, and we should. But at the end of the day, the truth of the gospel is offensive. And so we as Christians shouldn't be surprised when persecution, when rejection comes. That might be in your workplace. That might be at school. That might be among your family. It has different views than what's true to God's word. It might be on social media. But we as a people, if we treasure Christ, we shouldn't be surprised if persecution comes. and comes for us. So are we experiencing it? Is there pushback? Are we sharing the good news? The second thing that we see here is where Jesus is treasured, devout men will lead the way. Where Jesus is treasured, devout men will lead the way. Look at verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. And this is something that I'm praying for for our church and praying for for me, is that we would be a church that's full of men who lead spiritually guys we live in a culture especially in the United States where men drift into apathy and complacency when it comes to leading spiritually in our lives and home we tend to be a lot more like our father Adam who stood by when his wife Eve took the fruit instead of stepping up And what we need are men who are much more like the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Who stand, who sacrifice, who love the Father, who pursue the purity of the bride. Man, I want to call on you to be men of faith. This word devout literally means God-fearing. We need men who fear God more than they fear men. We need men who fear God more than they fear whether or not the paycheck's going to be big enough. We need men who fear God more than whether or not our families will be safe if we go on a mission trip or not. We need men who lead the way, loving Christ. And we've seen that. Peter, Stephen, we're about to see Philip, Barnabas. And these men, they're unnamed. We don't know who they are. But look at what happens. There arose a great persecution against the church And devout men, they buried him and made great lamentations. What's happening? In the midst of persecution, they are taking a stand. Just think about this. If you knew someone had just been killed for their faith, would you want to associate with that person? Would you want to be known by the religious leaders of being for that person? And they chose to fear God instead of fearing men. We need that in our church today this church today and I'm praying and I'm so thankful for the elders I get to lead alongside who love and follow God with all their heart so thankful for our deacons and other men who do that here but we need more of that and this is not in any way demeaning any of the women in the room we need you we need you to serve we need you to love Jesus God uses you mightily but we recognize there's a deficit of manhood in the church we need good men godly men I just want to challenge you, husbands, fathers, lead the way. Lead the way, model the way. 
Let it begin with us. Where Jesus is treasured, devout men lead. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 14, the Apostle Paul says this, Be watchful, stand firm in the face, act like men. Be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. This is a call to us men. A call to be watchful, to be aware, to stand firm, to be strong, to love well. This church needs you. Your families need you. Your wives need you. Your children, they need their father to be a picture of the gospel to them. Will you take a stand for God in your home? Let's keep going. Where Jesus is treasured, thirdly, the gospel is shared. If we treasure Jesus, we share the gospel. Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many were paralyzed or lame were healed so that there was much joy in that city. We see that where Jesus is treasured, the gospel is shared. And I've given you on the screen several other references throughout the chapter. Verses 4 through 6 we just read, but verse 12 and 25 and 35 and 40, each of these are an instance of someone sharing the gospel, sharing the good news, sharing Jesus Christ. Where Jesus is treasured, we share the good news of the gospel. This is why we've taken the time as a church to talk about share 1515, coming from John 15. It's not just an event that we had in the spring. We want to be a church who shares the love of Christ because we have found the love of Christ. Where love is known, love is shared. Jesus said it in John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. Jesus said, I've called you my friends. So what does that mean? For all that I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. Loving someone, being their friend, means that you make known the love of God to them. In fact, the most unloving thing that we can do as Christians is to not make known the love of God to other people. It it is part of who we are, and that's not something we have to do. That's something we get to do. We get to be witnesses. Are you sharing your faith at home with your children, with your spouse, with your extended family, with your coworkers, at school, in the classroom? When you're out and about, when you meet someone new for the first time, it's one of the first thoughts that you think about is, maybe I can share the gospel. Maybe they don't know Jesus. I want them to know. We, we've been given the hope of the world. We must share it. My wife and I, we're, we're doing some premarital counseling right now with a, a couple in our church. They're getting married in a few weeks, and they're just so excited about this, and it's just a joy to get to do it with them. And I have never met a bride-to-be that on their engagement day and receiving the ring keeps it in and hides it. It's the opposite, right? Like whenever that ring gets on that picture, you call everybody. It doesn't matter what time it is. It doesn't matter what they're doing. You don't care. We are spreading the news. It doesn't matter if you're going to get 50 photos in your Instagram or Facebook feed and whether or not people want to filter through all of those 50 photos. We are putting them up. We are sharing it. It's out there, right? 
because they have some joyful news that they've experienced and they're going to tell the world whether or not we want to hear it or not, it's going to be there. And I'm not saying don't post your photos when you get engaged, that's not the point. The point is, when we have good news, we share it. And we've been given the, get, the best news in all the world. The Son of God came down, He died for us, He made a way to save us. And we hold the cure. There are literally, right now, within a 10 mile radius of us, thousands of people who are mere breaths away from spending eternity separated from Christ. And we have the cure, we have the message, we have the good news. When Jesus is treasured, the gospel is shared. Are you sharing the gospel with your life? Are there people in your sphere of influence? Are, are you quick to pray for and open up your mouth? And I know it's hard, but it is a beautiful thing that we get to do. To be witnesses of Jesus Christ. We see that again and again and again. Here's the next, the next truth. Where Jesus is treasured, the gospel will overcome unbreakable barriers. Where Jesus is treasured, the gospel will overcome unbreakable barriers. I know you're reading through this, like there's 40 verses. He's still on the first, like 10. Oh no, what's about to happen? We're going to move quickly from this point on. But this is, this is so important to see. The unbreakable barriers that are overcome within the next section of verses happened through the sharing of the gospel. Where the gospel is not shared, people are not set free. Where the gospel is not shared, people are not brought into the family of God. But here we see the gospel is shared, and now people are coming to Christ. So let's talk about a few of the barriers. The big one in this passage is the barrier of religion and race. So it's really important to note in verse that Philip goes to Samaria. And our background history tells us that Jews and Samaritans, they did not get along. They worshiped differently. They looked for different messiahs. They were related, but there was a different kind of relation thing going on. John's uh, in, encounter of Jesus at the Samaritan woman, John 4, kind of breaks some of this down for us. The Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. How could the gospel ever go to the Samaritans? But it does. And Philip, he shares, and these barriers of racial animosity are broken down. In fact, it's such a big deal that the apostles send Peter and John to check it out. Like, is there any way this could be true? God has actually gone to the Samaritans? Like, of all the people you think couldn't be reached, that's the way they viewed the Samaritans. What is the situation in your life that seems impossible that God could overcome? What is the barrier that seems that can't be conquered? The gospel has the power to overcome it. It happens here, and it's beautiful it comes to the Samaritans. And the promise that Jesus given that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria is now happening and it's being validated through the coming down of the Holy Spirit, just like at Pentecost. One of the things that I find just in, in the gospel writers, it's, there's irony and it's just unique, but in, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus goes to a Samaritan village and they reject him. And John and James, the sons of thunder, do you know what they want to do? 
they ask Jesus if they can call down fire and destroy the village. I don't know if you've ever been mad at somebody. You've probably not called down fire on God to like come and like destroy their home or anything like that. So that's what's going on. Jesus says, no, don't do that. When the gospel comes to Samaria, guess who the apostles send to validate it? Peter and John. And guess what happens? The Spirit, Holy Spirit, the tongues of fire fall. The man who years before asked to destroy them is now seeing the fire of God fall among them. What seemed impossible is now breaking through. The gospel overcomes all barriers, not just race, but we see in this passage that overcomes bondage. There's demonic oppression. It says that demons were being cast out. There's this sorcerer named Simon, as you keep reading in verses 9 through 25. And he's deceiving the people, and it's witchcraft. It's demonic activity. And, God, and Philip preaches the gospel, and people are broken free from demons. One of my prayers for our church and for our area is that there, there's oppression and bondage in this room. Addictions, chains, past failures and regrets and guilt and shame and abuse. And it's a weight and it destroys and it kills. But the gospel can break through that. The gospel can bring healing. The gospel can cast those things out. And we see that happening here. One of my prayers is that as we as a church begin to treasure Christ, we see freedom come to the captives. We see people who are in bondage to pornography and lust broken free. We see people who are in bondage to addiction to substance abuse broken free and abuse in the homes and neglect and all the different things that there's be freedom in this room and in this church and in our area through the gospel and it can happen. And Jesus himself said that when those things begin to happen you know the kingdom of God has come. This is what he says in Luke 11:20. Jesus said this, but if by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Did you know that all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets would heal and do miracles, but they could never cast out demons? You will never find a passage in the Old Testament that talks about a demon being cast out. Only when Jesus came, the demons flee. The chains break. I don't know what barriers are in your life or in your family, but God, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the teaching of the gospel, can bring freedom. When we treasure Christ, walls come down through the power of the gospel. May that happen among us. May that happen through us. Let's move to the next one. Where Jesus is treasured, our idols are exposed. Where Jesus is treasured, our idols are exposed. When we begin to treasure Christ... The things that we look to other than Jesus Christ begin to become revealed. We see that happen in this text as well. Let's look at verse 18. So Peter and John, they've come on the scene. The Holy Spirit has now fallen on the Samaritans. And Simon, who was, who was um, a sorcerer, this is what happens with him. He says, Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. 
So here's what's going on. Simon sees the apostles lay hands. He sees the Holy Spirit fall and he asks, hey, can I buy that power from you? And we read this and we say, oh, Simon, what are you thinking? Can you buy the power of the Holy Spirit? And yet, can I just be really vulnerable? Can, Can we be really honest? We do this all the time. When we choose to pursue God, not based on God, but based on what he might give us. Whenever we want the gifts of God instead of God, this wickedness is in us. If we come to church because we want to just get a fill up, we want to see our friends, we want our kids to not go the wrong way, we want to get a better marriage... Instead of coming to worship the king of kings and adore him, this is what we're doing. We're saying, I don't want you, I want what you can give me. And it's it's idolatry, and it's not wrong to want a better marriage. It's not wrong to want your kids to follow Jesus. It's not wrong to want a better life or have God show up. Those things aren't wrong. But if you see God as a means to another end, instead of being the end, it is sinful. And I've done this so much. And in America, we do this so much. We go to church based on our preferences and our convenience and what it can give us and what it's not for us. And when we don't like it, we go somewhere else and we make it all about us and we're doing what Simon did. Saying, I want the gift, not the giver. And I'll sell out some time. I'll sell out some tithe dollars. I'll do whatever it is to get that. And this is what Peter tells him to do, and this is what I urge us to do. And again, I just encourage you, just measure your heart. Is this true anywhere in you? This is what Peter says, verse 21. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Why? For your heart is not right before God. Brothers and sisters, this morning, is your heart right before God? Did you come in with your heart right before God? This is what he tells us to do. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. And pray that the Lord, if possible, and it doesn't mean that God can't, that God can, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Gall of bitterness, bond of iniquity. It means that what is coming out of your heart is putrefying to God. That word gall, it means secretion. And I won't go into a lot of detail of what he's talking about there, but you, you get the picture. He's saying what is coming out of you is a stench to the living God. Repent. And brothers and sisters, when we begin to treasure Christ, when we begin to love the God of our salvation, he points the mirror of his holiness back at us and we begin to see our brokenness. And the Christian life is meant to be a life of continual repentance. Continual turning from sin, turning to God. And if you don't regularly repent, and that's not a pattern in your life, it doesn't mean you don't need to. It means you're probably blind to some of the idols and little saviors that live inside of you. All our hearts are an idol factory as one of the theologians used to say, that we all look to little saviors to save us from our circumstances instead of the ultimate savior. What idols are in your heart that would keep you from treasuring Christ this morning? Pray that we 
would be quick to repent. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul says that of people um, who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. So if I pursue God, I get this. Depraved in mind, deprived of truth. Godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment, I'm not trying to get anything other than God, is great gain. Do you want the giver or do you want the gift? What is your heart long for this morning? What are you running after this morning? May we be people who are radically repentant of our sin. A couple others quickly and as we close. Where Jesus is treasured, we pursue glad-hearted obedience. Where Jesus is treasured, we pursue glad-hearted obedience. Look at verse 26. So context, Philip preaches the gospel Thousands of people are coming to Christ. Look at what happens in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. So think about this. Thousands of people are coming to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit speaks. And I would love to know what that is like. The Holy Spirit to speak audibly to me. But the Holy Spirit speaks And he says, hey, leave where all this awesome ministry is happening and go to the desert. And he doesn't tell him why. Friends, sometimes God's going to call you to things that don't make sense. You're not going to have all the reason. You're not going to have all the answer. But you're going to look at God's word and you're going to know this is what he's called me to do. And I want to encourage you, obey obedience for us is not something we have to do because we're Jesus followers, it's something we get to do. That's why it's called glad-hearted obedience. We believe that God's purposes are greater than what we understand. We believe his plans for us are greater than we understand. So look at what Philip does. He goes. He doesn't know there's going to be an Ethiopian eunuch. He doesn't know there's going to be a guy in a chariot. He doesn't know how significant that guy's going to be. He leaves what looks like something very successful that God is doing through him, and he just obeys. I want to encourage you, when Jesus is treasured, we pursue obedience. We look at this word and we see what it tells us to do and we gladly do it because we love God and we believe he has the best for us. We spend so much time sometimes as believers wrestling through what is God's will for my life and what is the next step when we ignore the things that God has completely told us we should do. To share the gospel, to flee sexual immorality, to be generous, to lay down our lives, all the things that are clear, to love the word. I want to encourage you, be a person of glad-hearted obedience. And if obedience for you is not glad-hearted, then you need to ask yourself and pray, Lord, why is this not glad-hearted for me? What am I treasuring more instead of you? We obey not to earn God's love, but because of God's love. We pursue alignment with our lives and God's word. We obediently share. We choose to walk in obedience. Here's the next one. When Jesus is treasured, the word is known and made known. When Jesus is treasured, the word is known and made known. So Philip goes, he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch who came to Jerusalem to worship. Now he's heading back. He's a high-ranking official in the Ethiopian court. And so now we see the Gospels beginning to go to the ends of the earth. God has a divine appointment for Philip. And so he encounters this man. He's riding in a chariot in verse 29. And the Spirit said to Philip, go and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And I would love to, again, be there for this. 
A guy is racing a chariot, listening to the conversations happening inside that chariot. Comical kind of thing. I don't know, Philip must have been like a cross-country runner or something. Because he's just going, listening, hears him talking about Isaiah. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch said, how can I unless someone guides me? He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shears is silent so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. So when we treasure Christ, we are people of the word. Who know the word, love the word, pursue the word, and share the word. Again, think about what's happening here. Let's say you go back to work tomorrow. And you sit down at the office. And this person who you know or don't know, has a Bible open and they're reading from the book of Ezekiel. And they look at you and say, I don't have any clue what this means. Can you help me out? What could you say? And and again, I'm not talking about knowledge for the sake of knowledge. I'm talking about being a people who know the word, who love the word. And listen to what Philip does, verse 34 about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Verse 36, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. This passage is very familiar to the road of Emmaus, where Jesus is walking with the man. It says, And beginning with the prophets and Moses, he showed how all scripture fulfilled all the things about himself. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, be people who love the word. Creatures of the word. As Psalms 1 says, delight and meditate on it day and night. Let it dwell in you so it might live through you. The more we love Jesus, the more we love this book. You you can't treasure Christ and not treasure God's word. Be people of the word. This is one of the reasons why we teach expositionally through scripture, passage after passage after passage, because we want to know the fullness of God's word as a congregation. This is why we have study groups to help us study the word more. Life groups are so helpful for me. Uh, Every Monday night, we sit down in our living room with our life group and we talk about God's word and I learn from my brothers and sisters. And we talk about passages we don't understand and we learn from one another. You need this, I need this. When we treasure Christ, that begins to happen in us. Be people who treasure the word. And If you don't treasure the word, again, ask, Lord, why? Why do I not treasure the word And lastly, where Jesus is treasured, joy spills out. Where Jesus is treasured, joy spills out. I love verse 8 of chapter 8. So there was much joy in that city. This is one of my prayers for us as a church family. It's that we would treasure Jesus so much that joy would spill out in Kingsport. Don't you want that? The joy of Christ would spill out in Johnson City, Colonial Heights, Gray, Bristol. That we as a people, we would treasure Christ so much and that we would share and we'd be constant in persecution. Devout men would lead the way and we'd be radically repentant of sin. And that we would know the word so that when we go to our homes and our families and our offices and our schools, that joy would just spill out because the gospel's spilling out of our lives. 
So joy, it spills out in the city, but also look at this man's life, the Ethiopian, verse 39. Philip's carried away, the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Joy comes individually and joy comes to the city. I pray that God would do that in and through us. That there would be joy in your marriage. That there would be joy among your children that flows out of Jesus. There would be joy in the city, in your community, in your friends. When we treasure Christ, joy spills out. And everyone gets affected by it. So in conclusion, this is what I want, want us to think about. As we go into time response and the band's going to come up and I encourage you not to leave in this moment but to just think about this as we respond to the gospel. Where Jesus is treasured, the gospel goes out. Where Jesus is treasured, the gospel goes out. The converse is also true and this is what I want us to wrestle with and this is how we respond this morning. Where the gospel is not going out, Jesus is not treasured. Is the gospel going out in your life, friend? If the gospel is not going out in your life today, it is because you do not treasure Jesus Christ. One goes with the other. And as I've been preparing and walking through this passage, the Holy Spirit has just convicted me into so many different areas where I've not been treasuring Christ, where the gospel is not on display in my life. And that conviction leading to repentance is taking place in me. I just want to ask you, heads bowed and eyes closed, as we conclude. Are there any areas where the gospel is not going out in your life? The band's going to sing over us a song that we sang earlier. And we're going to sing this line. You have no rival. You have no equal. This morning, brother, sister, is there any rival in your life to Jesus Christ? In your heart, in your testimony? And if there is, I just want to challenge this morning to lay it down in repentance to Christ. Pray at your seat. Come down to this altar. We have a prayer room outside in the hall. For some of you, you're walking through the addictions, the brokenness, the hurt, and the pain. You just need someone to lock arms with you. That's why that prayer room exists. We will do it with you. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, doesn't have a relationship with him, you can today. You can be set free. Lord God, we give ourselves to you in this time to you. We ask that you would change us, that you would be the greater treasure, the greatest reward. In your name we pray. Amen.